Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I'm excited to welcome to the show today a prolific and acclaimed journalist, author, and advocate whose writing has shined the light on many pressing issues facing the queer community. Serving currently as a writer for the online publication Into, his work has also appeared in such places as The Village Voice, Slate, Huffington Post, and Mike. Beyond writing, he also serves as an editor for Modern Loss, and every week is one of the hosts of Slayer Fest 98, a popular podcast devoted to all things Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Please welcome to the show, Matthew Rodriguez. Hi, thank you for having me. That was such a good intro. Well, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> well, thank you for coming and taking the time out of your busy schedule. No, no, I really wanted to be here, and I'm so glad. And I'm excited because literally on last week's episode, uh, we had these visiting filmmakers from the UK who uh, really started digging into the queer issues of Buffy. And I said, well, <laughs> I know who has to come next week is a true Buffy aficionado. Well... And I here mean, you are. Yeah. Do you just want to like, oh, I don't know. Oh, no, no. <laughs> we'll get into it in a minute. But like now that you're here, now that you're on the couch and uh, we're going to start digging into you and what you do, I'd like to kick off the show with the same first question that I ask every guest. And it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. What's your connection to it? Why do you think there's a draw to people in the genre? Whatever. But why horror? So thinking about why. Why horror? The first thing I think about is that when I was young, I used to watch the same movie after school every day. Okay. It was on a worn out VHS and the movie was Hocus Pocus. Mm. And Hocus Pocus, no one would would say it's a horror movie, but there are elements of horror there because you need to feel danger. You need to feel mortality. And when you're a kid, kids movies usually up that like you think everyone is in danger when they're probably not because it's a kid's movie. Right. But um, you definitely feel that danger. But also... I mean, Hocus Pocus is drenched in camp and it's drenched in garishness. And and I mean, it's definitely a movie about drag queens in its own way. <laughs> yes. And so I think what happened was that kind of ignited this thing in me about, I mean, about, you know, fighting for your life and and trying to overcome, you know, what is an indescribable evil that has powers that are bigger than yours. And so it kind of set me on this path of liking that kind of film. And, right. and I think it naturally evolved. And then obviously that movie was also super queer. So it uh, appealed to so many things in me that I think as I grew older, I really came to like. And Buffy probably furthered that. And I came to Buffy at a very young age. Uh, my mom read about it. So we got Entertainment Weekly every Friday at my house. And I used to read it cover to cover. Like, right. And um. Entertainment Weekly always championed Buffy. And, and so I had been reading about it and my mom had been reading about it. And so at 10 years old, I started watching it when it was on the air at season, on, for season three. The first episode I saw was Anne when she's That's in a LA. good first episode. So um, I, you know, from there also kind of stayed on the horror bandwagon. I love that. Now, I, you said something that I think is interesting that I'm wondering if there's a bigger cultural discussion that we've yet to have. But when Hocus Pocus came out in July of 1993, most people don't recall that it was a critical and commercial failure. Right. And I think there was probably a group of us who saw it and, and kind of savored it for what it was. But I kind of think the gays saved Hocus Pocus. I think you're correct. But also, I want to point out that if anyone has ever read Jack Halberstam's The Queer, the Art, the queer Art of Failure, that like it's so correct that something that is so queer was a failure in most people's eyes. I think that there's a lot of queer, iconic queer movies that are considered failures that the gays have saved. I would probably make that argument for Drop Dead Gorgeous. Sure. And I would probably make that argument for But I'm a Cheerleader, which was like critically reviled when it came out. But that one is obviously a much more like on the nose of a queer top being on a queer topic. But um, yeah, I think that there is something about like the movie being a failure that makes it very queer as well. Absolutely. Well, because I think that what happens in addition to the camp factor and that otherness, which I think tends to be a draw for LGBTQ people to horror, because we see in the outsiderness ourselves, mm -hmm. there's also like in a property like Hocus Pocus being an underdog. Yes. That we champion the underdog. I mean, I would also make the argument that like, okay, The Wizard of Oz is kind of like a gay classic, but it's also so much a part of the straight world yes. that I would say gay people have more feelings for Return to Oz yeah, because it's so misunderstood, so underdog, and it's much more has a queer aesthetic to it. 
Oh, there's totally a queer aesthetic to Return to Oz. And I'm kind of excited that you brought it up because when you think about the uh, the parallels of Dorothy's family just not taking her at face value and uh, basically she's sent to conversion therapy. Yes. And I would also say that, I mean, there is like the witch sequence in the original Wizard of Oz and the tornado, which is scary. But I would say Return to Oz is more of a horror film. Like, yes. Um, you know, with all the heads and then the um, the wheelers are very scary. And there's much more of a sense of, oh, she's in peril and throughout Return to Oz than there right. is in The Wizard of Oz. God, I wish I had a hall of heads. Like if I'm going out on a Saturday night and I'm like, mm, your I'm, Friday night head, your yeah, Saturday night head. <laughs> I just need to mix it up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, dating in L.A. is tough already. But if I had a hall of heads. <laughs> This is going to be used in a court deposition. But imagine, later. no, but imagine, <laughs> like, if you could on FaceTime try on a new head with your friend before you went out. You're like, which head? <laughs> and then you like took it off on FaceTime, and then they inf- told you which head would work best. Oh my god, a dream. Um, that's coming. That's like that's the Black Mirror future of of dating. I have the a feeling. people at Black Mirror need to watch Return to Oz and then get back to us. Absolutely. So uh, I'm interested in in your youth. You see Hocus Pocus and you come to Buffy very early. And I love the fact that weekly you pour over Entertainment Weekly, uh, which I assume had to have been an early influence for your interests in writing in the world of entertainment. Talk to me about when you realized that you wanted to go into writing and journalism. So I would say writing and journalism for a long time never felt like they were on the same page for me. I always wanted to write. Mm-hmm. I wrote like little comic books when I was young and just tiny little stories. And I always knew I wanted to write. And when I went to high and when I was in high school, I took like some creative writing classes and then I minored in creative writing in college. And I wasn't great at the time at fiction. And so I kind of got like turned off I kind of really beat myself up because I would be in these fiction writing classes with like these straight white guys who were like great at straight white fiction and like the teachers would praise them (laughs) and my stuff was influenced by like Flannery O'Connor and Kate Chopin and like dainty women writers that I loved and like it was like none of the teachers kind of understood what I was writing right and so I didn't get and it was just odd and odd fit. So I didn't feel like I had any foothold in fiction. So I kind of walked away from writing fiction. and was like, I don't know exactly what to do. And then I got an internship writing for about.com's gay life blog as a senior, because this senior year, everyone tries to get whatever internship they can find. Right. And so from there, I was like, oh, I can write for the internet and it doesn't have to be fiction. It could, like you can actually write nonfiction-y things. And then my first official journalism job was actually writing for thebody.com, which is an HIV AIDS news website. And so I was a journalist who wrote about HIV for three years. And that was the first time that I really learned how to report and then also like write opinions and write things off the news cycle. So um, it took a long, I always knew I wanted to write, but I didn't know that because when you are in college and they're like pitching journalism to you, it's like you think you're going to go down to the city hall and like find out what the mayor has to say. Like that's what right. journalism was. And I didn't know that you could like do more things or be creative within that realm. Um, and it didn't take it didn't I didn't find that out until after I graduated. What I think is really special about coming kind of out of the gate, starting at the body is I feel like probably that work helped shape the voice that you utilize still today in terms of what you said about like having an opinion and, and kind of fighting the good fight in your work. Uh, what ethos did you take from that that you carry forward into what you do? So I think the biggest thing that I took from the body is like how to straddle the line between advocacy and journalism yes. because everything I was writing from was the, was from the perspective of like, we need to help HIV positive people and we need right. to talk about the issues that are happening in the community and so it's like the just by doing the work, you are in a way an advocate, but mm-hmm. you're still doing journalism. And so when you're working for like a niche publication like that, you get this sense that, OK, like my work is actually to empower people. Right. And I've taken that to where I've been since. And sometimes it causes problems. I'm, there are some old school journalists who are like, we're not advocates, we're journalists. And, you know, it's been a it's definitely there's definitely a tension in the journalism world about it right now that I think is generational about how you do journalism and like what you can and cannot say. But strictly from an opinion point of view, do you think when you are writing to represent minority, whether it's people of color or queer people, we have a responsibility for that advocacy to include in our work? 
So I'm I'm just of the the my, the thought that like all good journalism is advocacy by another name. Like if you are a local beat reporter and you're reporting about an elevator that doesn't work in like a public housing project, you're writing about it because you you want people to be safe and you think that the city should take responsibility for blah, blah, blah. And like, I, so I'm of the school that like when you're doing journalism, when, when you're handing people information, that was a big thing at the body. We had a, an ethos kind of on our about and what it was. And the idea was to break down the barriers between people and knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so I've kind of taken that ethos everywhere is that like if you're if you have some kind of knowledge, you should bring people into it. So I do a lot of research when I report. I read books, I read other articles and I try to bring everything together into one and then present it to people and say, you know, here are all the facts and I can accumulate them in a way that furthers an argument. And I hope that I bring you into this knowledge that I have. Excellent. Now, I know a lot of the work, starting with the body and the work that you've done forward, you have done a lot of writing and advocacy uh, to bring awareness to HIV uh, issues. There was a moment a few years ago, so I'm going to delve into something that is is genre related, where while at a panel at San Diego Comic-Con, we were discussing the issues of queer horror and an audience member asked us, could you talk about HIV narratives in the world of horror films? And I had a diverse panel and some people talked about like the Reagan era and how that affected 80s horror and blah, blah, blah. But because you have done such work in this space and and written and empowered uh, through writing on these issues, I was kind of curious if you had any thoughts on HIV narratives in genre, if at all. Oh, I have so many thoughts. So I once wrote an essay about it for the body and I just want to start off. So. You know, what I said before is that I think the horror genre is the only genre that the only thing you kind of have to do in the genre is make people feel their mortality. No other genre really does that. Yeah. And that's like the bottom line is you're going to write a horror movie. It kind of has to make people confront the fact that they're human and that they might die. Right. And I think the AIDS epidemic did that for gay men and it continues to. I mean, we all have this like collective trauma around our own bodies and infection and cleanliness and all these things. And so when you're growing up queer, it can feel like you're almost always in a horror movie because you feel your mortality. So it's so tangible. So um, I can't find the word that I'm thinking of, but it's palpable is the word. Yeah. Um, and so when I think of HIV narratives in film, I think of I do think of the 80s and I think of that as not exactly about HIV, but more responding to the 70s of free love and sexuality and like the the the, the dirtiness of that. with right. You know, Jason being killed because uh, being killed as a boy or dying as a boy because people were having sex. Well, and then the through line of Friday the 13th is that that little chestnut from Scream where if you have sex, right. you die, which for the gay community and the LGBTQ community seems a very clear message. Right. And I think that like horror movies in the 80s were kind of like dealing with that in a straight way. Yes. I also always say I was just on a podcast, you know, the Blind Spots podcast. Yeah. Jorge, we love him. Yeah. yeah. So I was just on the podcast talking about fatal attraction. And I think that fatal attraction is a straight response to the AIDS epidemic, which the main thesis of that of that movie is what happens when you stray outside your relationship and what do you bring home with you? Oh my God, that's so smart. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think of like a movie like that as like dealing with, cause it came out in 87. So the mm-hmm. AIDS epidemic would have been news for six years. Right. So it was kind of in the ethos. Um, and so that was the early thing was like the anti-sexness. But then I think now you also reached a period in the 2000s where HIV narratives were often about infection. Like you yeah. had the, the whole Walking Dead series. You And I think zombies have kind of moved from mass consumption to the idea of infection. Um, you have, I can't think of a lot of other things right now. My head's going blank. But also, I mean, It Follows. Yeah, It Follows in a way is sort of like, the ultimate haunted STD. Like oh, it's a 100%. supernatural STD movie. And that's what I love about it is that uh, it's it's a movie about a ghost that you get through sex and you can never get rid of. But you know what I think? So we're talking about mortality and queerness and I want to like sew it up in a little bow or whatever. I love a bow. Is it's about the fear of letting someone in and being intimate with someone, which is something that queer men deal with all the time. 
what happens if I let someone into my body or what happens if I allow someone to do that? Like what's going to happen to me? And it follows is one of the movies that I've watched that probes into that question so well and so thoughtfully. Right. Cause watching it, I was like, this is about like, can we just, we can say whatever we want on the podcast. Right? Yeah. I mean, this is about like having sex with a condom without a condom for the first time, like yeah. with your boyfriend, you know, like it's all those things that I've never seen a film kind of, go into those ideas so much and so well, even though it was from a straight perspective, it was very queer in that sense. Well, and so that kind of leads into something else I wanted to talk to you about, because there obviously are queer narratives and then there are queer narratives. Right. And one of the discussions I remember you and I had, uh, we went and saw The Disaster Artist together. We did, yes. And uh, afterwards, when we had dinner, we were talking about how Though Call Me By Your Name was likely at the time to be nominated for Best Picture. Perhaps the sleeper queer movie of the year was actually Shape of Water. And that is a broader definition of queer. And uh, you ended up writing an article about the queerness of the Shape of Water. And what I think is really interesting is you just highlighted the queerness of It Follows, even though it's a movie that maybe to the larger world right. is not a queer movie. Do you find that, especially with genre, there are queer narratives even when it's not inherently queer? Yeah, well, I mean, 100%. I think yeah. the conversation that we had highlights that, right? Yeah. But and I think that also as queer people, we're really good at reading queerness into everything. Like, yes. I mean, the MCU is like the queerest thing in the world, but there's no gay characters in it. But like, I was talking to someone the other day, I was like, I, I've not seen Infinity War yet. This will date when this podcast is being recorded. So I haven't yep. seen Infinity War yet, but I'm like, I hope if Captain America dies, like he and Bucky get to fuck before <laughs> that happens, because that's like what we're leading to. So, I mean, isn't it interesting? I think also when as as queer audience members, like you said, uh, we are good at reading things that people don't see. We also can see when things sort of are disingenuously placed oh, totally. just to satiate an audience. And my thought when you talk about Bucky and Captain America, we're about to go here, Dead for Filth listeners, I believe it's in Civil War when it's all really about Tony Stark and Steve Rogers fighting over a man. Completely. And then when Cap like goes AWOL to, you know, go on the lam with Bucky, they have this really awkward scene where he has to like say goodbye to the girlfriend who's clearly introduced just to make it look like right. Captain America is just not like so swooning over. And it's his girlfriend's niece or daughter. Yeah. It gets complex. Straight people, man. I, it's uh, so weird. Like they just need to shoehorn heterosexuality into it when clearly like Captain America and Bucky are just like waiting to go like they just need to go to the bar put their hand into the bowl of condoms and go home well like, i mean and i think that there wouldn't like talk about like a truly breaking and transcending your your social trappings captain america as a uh product of the 40s to finally be in modern day I, I, I want to see that movie i always thought it would be i always wondered what captain america would think to like wake up and be in America and see like more racial equality. He's like, wait a minute. <laughs> like he missed that whole period. <laughs> right. It's like, um, but I, I think here's the thing about Captain America and Bucky and the weird. So even though they're not writing it, it still speaks to me about how sure. straight people can write queerness subconsciously mm -hmm. and that there is like a little bit of queerness in everyone because really what they're writing is homosociality right so yeah. homosociality for being like oftentimes in literature there's two men fighting over a woman but or an, a, another man right. and symbolically they're actually like releasing their feelings for each other and like they the other person that they're fighting over is really like a proxy for their feelings for each other well a lot of hetero posturing is for other members of the same sex. I often, you know, I remember I used to work at a swimming pool in, in the summer as a teenager and like the straight boys would like, they were gayer than gay kids. Oh yeah. Because they would always like, well, look at me, Steve, look what I'm about to do. They wanted people to like, it was, there was always posturing and preening for whatever reason it was. And I never, th there was nothing sexual about right. it, but it was all about, I need to 
impressed. So do you know the artist Barbara Kruger? I write, I bring her up in like every queer thing that I write. So she was very, is very famous for just like taking old pictures and like putting kind of like really bl- blunt sayings over them. Right. And she has this one that I always bring up, which is like um, a picture of like men playing football in like the twenties, maybe like right. real pigskin helmet, whatever, you know, like, um, and the saying on it is you create intricate rituals to touch the skin of other men. And to me, like choreographing a fight scene so that Steve Rogers and Tony Stark can get their hands on each other or Steve Rogers and Bucky can get there or whatever. Right. Is like that to me is like a bunch of straight dudes in Hollywood getting together and like creating this product where they just want men to touch each other. And violence is the only way they know how to do that. But like they like they so intensely want these characters to somehow be physical with each other. Oh, I mean, I uh, don't know if I've ever discussed this on the show before, but as much as I love the horror movies of the 80s for their like gratuitous success. Another genre that's very much that of the 80s is the action movies of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I'll go back and watch movies uh, like Bloodsport or uh, anything with Dolph Lundgren at the time, uh, you know, and there's always this like moment where like Jean-Claude Van Damme will be like oiled up and shirtless and then like beating the shit. Like I can literally hear like my peers being like, Oh my God, like he's so badass." but the whole movie is him laying hands on somebody else. Right. So that's in very, with this like sexy physique. Well, it's funny. I just, I just saw on Thursday, I saw the new movie disobedience with Rachel Weiss and Rachel McAdams. And, um, have you heard about it? I have. So for those who have not heard about it, it's a movie where Rachel McAdams and Rachel Weiss both play. Well, Rachel McAdams is living in an Orthodox Jewish community and Rachel Weiss left the community. So she moved out of it because she didn't want to be a part of it anymore, but she comes back because somebody dies and Rachel McAdams and Rachel Weiss had a sexual relationship and they kind of like reignite it when she's back because they're so passionate for each other. Mm. And the whole climax of the movie is that they get a hotel room together and Rachel Weiss spits into Rachel McAdams mouth several times. And it's like, the hottest sex scene, honestly. And, um, and it goes on for like four minutes, which is astronomical for a sex scene in a movie. Yes. Um, especially a non-straight sex scene. Yeah. Yeah. So like they're spitting in each other's mouth and like that Jean-Claude Van Damme thing that you're talking to me is like the eighties equivalent of like spitting in each other's mouths. Like they would probably spit on each other in like a, I hate you way, but like they want to exchange fluids, whether it's like blood or something. It's like, you know, that's the whole thing is like the bodily fluid exchange of the oils and the sweat, you know, it's all there. Uh, I love where this is going. Speaking of queerness, uh, kind of being, uh, imposed on things that maybe the world at large didn't initially, uh, think of as queer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like to discuss how we met be- okay. because that's a very, uh, kind of adorable horror queer story. Yeah. Uh, and it was this past summer when the Babadook came out. You had uh, been working on an article for Mike about the rise of the Babadook as a queer icon, and we had been put in touch um, because of the queer horror panel I do at Comic-Con. And uh, what did you think of that whole phenomenon at the time? I, was always, I remember being happy to give you the quote, but it is kind of patently absurd in some way, but it's delicious. Oh, and I love that you use the word delicious. I still love it. And I, you know... Queer people also do love monster movies, I think, because like we have been deemed monsters for so long. Yes. And there's also something garish and drag queeny and over the top about monsters in general. Right. All this look at me attention that (laughs) monsters need. (laughs) Right. Um, I still love the Babadook moment. I think back on it so fondly. It happened at such an interesting time on the Internet and it got memed into so many different ways. Right. It was over me. It was like, the you know, the Babadook was the Miss Vanjie of 2017. Oh my God. <laughs> Hashtag Miss Vanjie the Babadook. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I, I still stand by the Babadook being super queer. Um, but, you know, I, I revisited that idea in an essay that I wrote at the end of 2017. And I did a little bit of self-criticism. And I asked myself, um, why when we are queering things, why do we automatically go to, oh, this is a gay male narrative, right? Sure. And so I kind of took myself and others in the community to task saying like, what about the Babadook reads gay male to you? Because when we discussed it, we also like the Babadook is Diane Keaton, like Annie Hall. That's right. 100%. Uh, And 
people were also doing, I mean, like there was the Babadook Pennywise conversation of them being in a relationship and stuff like that. Right. Which I ended up getting requoted on in many articles because they brought that all back and they pulled quotes from the article that I did with, uh, with, with you where I talked to you. The thing about that narrative, and I'm, I'm very interested that you brought it up, is because I remember at the time a couple people reached out to me and they're like, well, the Babadook and Pennywise can't be in a queer relationship because in Stephen King's book, we it is explicitly stated that the entity that is it, Pennywise, is biologically female right and every time someone would say that to me i said well queer doesn't mean gay always and at what point did we ever actually gender the babadook anytime i ever say the babadook i've never said he i always say the babadook i realize that it's mr babadook but but also like there like that could be i mean that could be a drag persona for like a drag king persona for like a woman because the because the babadook is also very feminine yeah and um i yeah so that was the basis of the essay too was just saying like why do we say because I think it wasn't you, obviously, because we we talk with a lot of nuance, but like right. the internet was very like, oh, these are, it was as if Tom Daly and Dustin Lance Black had gotten married. You know, like <laughs> yeah. it was just that reincarnate. And I was like, we've seen this. Right. Like this could be, because, you know, biologically female thing, like this could be a trans man and a trans woman. Like, right. you know, like it could be anything. And then the fact that we went to like the most heteronormative way to talk about queerness for these two monsters is, right. was a little disappointing. So I said that as well as like, there's so many ways that we could talk about their queerness that goes beyond male, male marriage. Well, I think it's poignant too, because I don't really think that you can assign specific gender or identity to either of these characters. Monster aside. Right. The Babadook and Pennywise both sort of inhabit this place where they are, uh, emotions made manifest yes or you know in the case of the babadook he or things you don't yeah, secret yeah. secrets i would say like yeah. things that you don't talk things that you repress you repress your depression over the death of your husband or you repress the secrets of a town blah 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 so it's, i think it's about repression too. it is it's about repression well that's it like that's why that to me is ultimately why the babadook uh, made sense as as a queer icon because the Babadook is truly symbolic of repression breaking free. But what's fascinating, and I remember saying this to you on the phone when we very first talked, because I remember you said, why do you think this is happening? And I said, well, I think it's happening because of internet nonsense. Yeah. But it's lucky that they picked something that makes but sense. But internet nonsense can also be valid, right? 100%. Because right. yeah, it's yeah. like the internet nonsense has some kind of like prime, pr- prime, moval, prime mover behind it or yeah. something that speaks to us. Because I also think that there is something like, I mean, queer people have such a complicated relationship to their childhoods. So right. when I think about it, like I think about how many queer people don't like children, yeah. <laughs> like it is terrorizing these kids or how we think of um, going back to the queer art of failure. The whole argument there is that queer people often fail at being kids because we don't adhere to rigid gender norms or we go outside our gender. We don't want to play with footballs. We want to play with Barbies, blah, 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 blah. Right. So um, the we, we often look back at our childhoods with so much trauma about failing mm-hmm. that like, I think it also appeals to the like, we want to destroy our childhood. Right. And I also believe that it is an an operable narrative about uh, the loss of childhood innocence, which I think most queer people can like really identify because I feel like once you have that realization that you're different than everyone else, you don't get to hold on to it for as long. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's a lot there's a lot of queerness in in, uh, the the narrative of our favorite dancing clown. (laughs) <laughs> uh yes is pennywise supposed to be a sad dancing clown or just a dancing clown pennywise is a dancing clown who was part of a circus that came through dairy uh in the early part of the century and the creature that is uh pennywise just took the form it's just one oh, of many forms. okay so it's a historical yeah because i never read the book because i don't have four months but <laughs> <laughs> it is it is over a thousand pages uh the thing that i find fascinating and this is where i get like real nitpicky it's like the it's the nouveau version of people being like well it's uh the the, the name of the doctor is frankenstein that's the monster oh, i'm the person that's kind of like well that's not act- pennywise is a, a face it puts on right but like it 
it is not Pennywise, but Pennywise is it. That, right. Because as you know, it, whatever it is, uh, takes on many different forms. It's the woman in the painting. It's the big fucking spider thing that's at the end of the book that we probably won't see in the movie because that would be hokey. Uh, but I've been thinking about the big spider for so so many months. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big spider Apolo- fan. Are you a big spider apologist? I'm a big spider apologist. <laughs> you know that I always like to take the stance uh, of um, the unpopular opinion in the world of horror, yeah. which is a good lead into a uh, discussion of your gig in the world of Sunnydale. Totally. Because uh, when I have been a guest on Slayer Fest in the past, I've always had the unpopular opinion of loving Buffy's least favorite boyfriend amongst We fans. both love Riley. I love Riley. I um, love Riley. And do, well, do you like Dawn? Are you a Dawn apologist? I have no problem with Dawn. Okay. Um, I just think that, you know, if a show's going to go on for seven years, you have to do new things. So... I think that people don't like Riley, and if anyone listens to Slayer Fest, they've heard me say this many times. I think people don't like Riley because it's the only relationship where they actually show the work of two people having to like make a relationship work. Yes, with Angel, it's like swoon. You're the first person I've ever fallen in love with, and we fall in love on first sight. And with Spike, it's weird because there's a sexual assault narrative and all this stuff. But like, it's it's basically. I think people like it because it's like Spike is the person who's loved someone for so long that they finally get them get them together Riley is very much like these are two people who just like actually do the work the hammering and nailing of right. building something together and it, that is kind of boring to watch well it is boring to watch because the truth is like a, a good boyfriend is not good TV right and that's true of any narrative like Angel is a vampire who ends up torturing and killing some of Buffy's close friends right but she loves him because they're star-crossed lovers Spike is involved in a sexual assault but that's compelling television Riley's a nice guy and that doesn't make for good TV because there's not like a cliffhanger at the end of that episode. And we see it on every show. Like if you look at Rory's boyfriends on Gilmore Girls, probably her best boyfriend was the least interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Veronica Mars, her best boyfriend was her boyfriend in season three because he wasn't involved in like a Ponzi scheme or an <laughs> abduction or a murder. He was just a surfer dude who happened right. to be okay. But fans kind of rally behind the drama because that's why we watch television. Uh, I guess. So something that I was thinking about knowing that I was going to be on this podcast was wrestling with the idea of whether Buffy is actually horror. Yeah. Because one of the things that I always go to is that horror requires a sense of mortality and you never feel like Buffy's going to die. You know, she dies twice. Well, she does. Well, okay. (laughs) But you also know she's going to come back. Right. Of course. There's not a sense of finality to the mortality. It's um, there's death and resurrection. She's a Christ narrative. Um, so true. Um, she sacrifices herself to save the world and then comes back. Um, so I, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, especially like on the podcast, because there are episodes that are true horror episodes like Hush. And yes. I also would also argue the first five minutes of the first episode with um, Jesse. <sighs> Darla. Oh, Darla. Yeah. Darla, where she goes, where it's the very first thing and Darla kills that guy. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. Eight, 11 years, uh, 21 years later. Yeah. So if, you have, <laughs> if you haven't seen the first episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer released in 1997. March 17th or 10th or something like that. Yeah. Or 21st. Um, so there are a few episodes that fit into the genre, but I, it's always, you know, kind of categorized as horror. And I've been thinking about that relationship with horror because you don't sit down to watch, but you don't really get scared watching Buffy unless you're watching Hush right. or a select few episodes. Um, because now I think about shows that are on t- TV that are actually in the horror genre, like American Horror Story, where like they are willing to kill main characters. Yes. And that you can actually feel like, oh, I don't know if this person's gonna, like, you know, Sarah Paulson will survive, but you don't know right. if everyone will survive every episode. Well, I just think it's the shifting environment of television. Yeah. Like back in the day of a 22 episode ordered season where they didn't have anthologized seasons, they're of course not going to kill Sarah Michelle Geller. Right. Because that's just not where TV was. But I would argue that Buffy is horror and it's not necessarily because there are vampires and demons and, you know, other such murderous malarkey, Uh, but because it operates in the way that you discussed at the top of the episode where there is that uh, sense of allegory. And I think I think that's where Joss really excels in weaving a genre narrative uh, or did at the time in that. 
you know, the, the oft-cited, if you sleep with your boyfriend, will he be a monster in the morning? And Buffy does that to a horror degree. Where or even just the high school is hell narrative, yeah. like the hauntings that happen, um, stuff like that. And I had the discussion last week uh, with uh, the filmmakers from the UK who cited the fact that there is queerness to Buffy the whole way, even before we have Tara right. in it, because of the idea that Buffy has to come out to her mom as mm-hmm. the Slayer and how Joyce is like, have you tried not being the Slayer? And I think the genius of, of Buffy is that for years, there are things like that threaded throughout that speak to like wayward adolescents masked as monsters and demons and ghosts. Well, can we even talk about, so you were talking before about like explicit, we were both talking about explicit queerness versus covert queerness. In a lot of ways, Buffy is a much more queer show before Willow comes out. Yes. I mean like the pre, so season four early at season one through four to me is a lot more queer than five through seven. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, not only the coming out, but also I think about the faith narrative is the most queer thing that Buffy has ever done. I think faith might be an early representation of uh, a gender fluid character on gender fluid, sexuality fluid. And of course, she gets slut shamed for it the whole time for being sexually fluid, but also the ways in which she flirts with Buffy and like, um, also, you know, touching the skin of other men, but the way that like they fight with each other is very sexual. Like, you know, right. the final fight between them in graduation day is like them finally, that is like a hot, the hottest sex. That's like their original Rachel Weiss and Rachel McAdams <laughs> spitting in each other's mouths. But instead they just stab each other. Right. Yeah. They penetrate each other one trip, one way or the other, yeah. you know? And the way that Buffy and Faith interacted the whole season was extremely queer because I think it was also one of those things like, you know, like when you're younger and you're in high school and you meet another queer person and they like ignite something in you and you don't know what it is and you're used to being the only queer person, like Buffy is dealing with being the only slayer, but not really. Right. And I think that that is the actual like queer narrative of the show is her relationship with Faith. I, yeah, I can see that. And you're right. There's things all throughout the first four seasons, uh, the the hyena episode. Well, and Z- I mean, and Xander's in high school pre Anya is a whole queer thing of like, is he or isn't he? They play with that a lot. Right. And it has to do more with his own insecurities and his masculinity. So outside the narrative of the sto- the show and inside the narrative of your relationship with the show, because Slayer Fest has uh, Slayer Fest 98 has had uh, a degree of success and, and listeners. You've had people involved in Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm-hmm. both listen and engage and be on the show. Uh, tell me about the creation of that podcast and like the fact that you were so committed to Buffy that you're like, we're going to do this and make it a, a kind of a queer discussion on a weekly basis. Well, I love a good mythology origin story. We've all seen the first Spider-Man three times. Yes. <laughs> the first, the, the three different I love first how Spider-Mans. Marvel heavy this episode is. Um, so Slayer Fest 98 was born out of the brains of three people. My, uh, me, my co-host Ian Carlos Crawford and uh, the this is like some Riff Regan shit that you're getting. Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> we had a third co-host uh, in the first episode, Joe Reed, who now comes on the show a lot. Right. Who um, decided to bow out just like with scheduling. It was just like too much. From, I mean, the podcast, a podcast is a huge undertaking. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and who decided that just like it was not the right time for him to be a part of something. Right. The original name of Slayer Fest 98 was Three Slayers No Waiting. <laughs> and the day before we launched, Joe was like, you know, I really don't think I can do this. And so we had to pivot to two hosts and we decided to be Slayer Fest 98. Um, so that's the origin story. So it, it started with Ian and I started the podcast in March and we actually just met in November. And we had both just been talking about, I mean, we, clicked instantly because of Buffy and then we had both wanted to start some kind of podcast and I at the time was like in grad school finishing grad school and working at Mike and it felt like I needed to create to do something that I created purely out of joy and pleasure right and talking about something that I loved as like a mental health sanity project Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of like how Slayer Fest 98 came about. And we launched it on the 20th anniversary of, so we also wanted to do something to celebrate the 20th anniversary. So we launched our first episode on that day. And you're well into, because every episode 
is usually one or two episodes. So we used to blend episodes in seasons one and two and a little bit of three. And then actually I was the one who rang the alarm and was like, in season three, every episode can be its own thing. There's really no filler episodes anymore. And even people would argue season four has like one-off fillers, but I think that they're so philosophically philosophically rich and so tied to other things that it became harder to put episodes together because the episodes would go super long. So um, we made the decision going forward, starting with season four, that we would only do one episode per episode now. And your work on the show caught the attention of Marty Noxon. Really? I think so. Wait. Oh, no, Jane Spenson. Yeah. Uh, Tell me about hearing from her and what that was like. So getting Jane Espenson on the show was amazing. I mean... And she, so she actually came on the episode where we talked about Pangs, which is an episode that she wrote. Right. So she was able to go into the writing process of like what it means to research the Shumash uh, Native Americans that she wrote about in the show. And she also gave us like little cute behind the scenes stories. But I think what was the most interesting thing about having her on, it was, it was very validating from like a podcast perspective to have someone who was on the show be there. Right. But also I loved hearing about choices like deliberate or non-deliberate that you have to make on a show sometimes because sometimes you know we think of like the episodes as canon but it's so easily could have been something else you know and that's what I love is that like there are so many routes that something can take and peeling back the curtain and being like you know canon could have been different on the drop of a dime is very interesting to think about um so for people who listen to the show or don't listen to the show, one question that we ask every week, just like you have a weekly question, one question we ask every week that we're going to have to stop asking in season five is what would Dawn be doing if she were in the timeline of the show right now? Yeah, because Dawn doesn't get introduced till five, but she's right. retconned into... Right. She's retconned into everything. So um, we bring that up every week. And Jaina Spenson had an amazing answer as someone who has had to write words for Dawn's mouth. Right. Um... For Pang, so for people who have seen the episode or haven't seen the episode, um, it's a Thanksgiving episode, which Thanksgiving doesn't always get episodes unless you're on Friends on Correct, like Halloween yeah. and Christmas. Um, so it's a Thanksgiving episode and Buffy becomes very obsessed with the idea of getting her friends together for this um, Thanksgiving episode. And she actually said that Joss Whedon left her a note that Buffy seemed like she was possessed by a Thanksgiving demon because she had written it too intense and she had to pull <laughs> it back. Um, So we asked her, what do you think Dawn would be doing? And she actually said, you know, had Dawn been on the show, that would have been the reason that Buffy would have been so intense about Thanksgiving because Joyce would have been somewhere else. And Buffy was like, I have to give Dawn this Thanksgiving. So she's like, I actually wish Dawn was retconned into season four because it would have had a Buffy would have had a reason for wanting for wanting to be the mother figure out of nowhere. I love that. Yeah. So before we leave the world of the Slayer behind, um, what's your favorite episode? (laughs) This is so weird it's like a nonsensical answer my favorite episode is selfless the season seven episode about anya did you know that's my favorite episode have we ever talked about this no that's when ian called me the first time to do your show he said what's your favorite and i said it's selfless anya's episode because <gasps> Anya's my favorite character Anya's my second favorite character but i also think i mean i personally love tara but i actually think that anya is the most important character on the show because she's the one who's finding out what it means to be human and selfless right. is kind of the culmination of that So I think it's actually one of the most philosophically deep episodes and just like one of the most fun. And it has a throwback to the musical episode, which is crazy bonkers. And and the, the, the song in Selfless is the best musical number. Like to me, if it were in, I would be like, that's the best song. Yeah. A season later. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. We could talk about Buffy all day, which is why you have your own show. (laughs) (laughs) Now, speaking of other projects you're working on, I had read that you have been working on a book. Is that true? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm. it's probably a little bit of a stalled process out there. If anyone out there is a literary agent and likes the way I talk, please get in contact with me. Right. Um, but no, I am like right reaching, actively reaching out to learn. That's the process that I'm in right now. But right. Um, when I was in graduate school, I started doing um, a, a part memoir, part um, cultural criticism part reporting project that was actually about Grindr. Um, and so actually it's kind of funny because I do, you know, work for Grindr now. And I think that's actually an interesting kind of coda on right. the whole thing. Um, so Grindr came out the year that I turned 20. And so I lived my entire twenties, which is like when you're supposed to discover yourself sexually and all these things with like 
the, the with Grinder always there and like right. always knowing who are the closest 100 people to me. And also, um, since people can't see me because this is a podcast, like living as a brown person and as a person of size in this platform that kind of privileges, um, I mean, as everywhere in the world does that privileges white people and people who are not of size, you know, um, right. thin people or built people and stuff like that. So um, it had such an enormous influence on who I became sexually and how I interacted with the community. And I mean, so it, it just completely changed my whole life, uh, you know, queering space. So it's, it's a, it's a memoir about queering spaces, about queer people's connection to technology, because I did write the first chapter and the first chapter is me is about me and my space prior to Grindr. Right. Um, and so I think that like, uh, and I do a lot of research in it as well. And I've, I do this kind of timeline of queer people and using whatever technology is available to us to communicate with each other mm. and how it's changed from like, I, um, I did some research into classified ads and there are like, you can find classifieds in the 1600s in that were in the back of the newspaper or 1700s were like men were looking for other men for adventure partners. Oh. And there were even code words for looking for only masculine adventure partners. So you would say what you were into and it could be like, if you were into, and if you wanted a masculine guy, you would say like, I would, I want you for like a mountain climbing partner. And that would mean that you were looking for a masculine guy. So this is something that has been with us for hundreds of years. So my book is about the persistence of these themes over time and ways that gay men have tried to communicate with each other and how cruising has changed all throughout all, and um, all through the lens of me in my twenties. I really want to read that. I really want to write it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you uh, spoke within that a little bit about, kind of the privilege of certain body types in the community. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you did recently was you uh, created a shirt. Yeah. Tell me about that. Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up. So with along with a friend of mine who we became friends through Twitter, I was I on my Twitter, I try to make it a space where we question um, desirability politics and we question everything. Um, And I was tweeting about just asking people honestly, what about abs makes you want to fuck somebody? Like what about having pectoral muscles means like, or sorry, abs are not pectoral muscles. This is how little I know about fucking muscles. <laughs> what about like having a ripped stomach equals like, Oh, let's have sex. Right. Cause right. on some level, that's an absurd notion. Sure. Um, so I just frankly asked that question and then people, you know, a lot of people engaged and we were talking about bodies and someone tweeted at me like, um, why should a body like mine take work to desire? And it was my friend who lives in Minneapolis. His name's Justin Levy. And then I replied, I was like, we need to put this on a t-shirt right now. And then he got in front with, uh, in touch with a friend of his named Kyle Latendra, who's a um, designer who designs queer clothes and stuff like that. And he designed the logo Mm -hmm. that went on the shirt. And then he and I, sold the shirt together and Kyle we were like willing to pay him based on what we got and like Kyle did it for free and it was really amazing and then so we sold this shirt we sold it in pink and gold and it said um, why should bodies like mine take work to desire and we gave all the proceeds to the Trevor Project because we just like didn't want to make any money off of it we just wanted the shirt to exist and the message to exist and it's actually been really great I mean I have a friend who works at the LA Times who takes selfies with the shirt on and um, people have taken selfies in it and like used hashtag bodies like mine mm-hmm. and you just kind of see it. And it's it's been this like amazing feeling to see people starting conversations about body positivity, because I think right now there is a very like straight female narrative around body positivity. And it's been really fun to queer it and have like GNC trans people talking about like body acceptance and body positivity as well. Right. And I really love uh, sort of a cyclical conversation. And what happened at the beginning of this talk is we we discussed a little bit about the queer relationship with horror and how often that has to do with uh, fear of our own bodies and coming to terms with body issues. Mm-hmm. And 
we now have arrived at this place where you are championing body positivity. Is there a place in the narratives of our films where uh, we can, I know we can be doing it better, but what are your thoughts about body representation on film? It doesn't have to be horror specifically. And, and where are we failing? So what I'm going to say is that there's a tendency in film to treat people of size as bad because of their size. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm going to specifically reference the last movie that I tweeted about regarding this, which was I, Tanya. Have you seen I, Tanya? I have. Yes. Okay. So in I, Tanya, there's Galuli, like um, her husband. No, Jeff Galuli is her husband, right? Yes. And then there's his friend, the bumbling guy. Right. And like everyone in the, I mean, obviously he was like an idiot in real life, right. you know, like he was not very bright, but the film treats his fatness as a part of his evilness. Like no one else in the film is like a Flannery O'Connor Southern grotesque character, but they break genre to make this man like he's always sweaty, always gross. And the camera even seems to have like a different relationship with him than all the rest of the characters. And so I left that movie and I said like, um, listen, the movie is very loud. I did not think that they had to play Gloria four times and <laughs> Gloria is my favorite song. Um, and even I was like, that's a weird musical choice, but I also did not love that they treated this man's fatness as a part of his stupidity or as a part of his, um, evilness. Right. And I think that that's something that we do with characters of size a lot. Like their fatness becomes part of who they are. Right. And we, it happens everywhere. I mean, if you play Overwatch, characters of size are treated differently than than thin characters. And actually, I've spoken to I'm going to I'm going to blank on his name. His first name's Todd. Um, I've spoken to someone who's like basically a queer fat studies professor before um, for a work that I did for a piece that I wrote at Mike during the election, which was about how much fat stigma there was in the election both around Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and how like we could talk about politics but we didn't have to talk about their bodies right and um he does a lot of research into like gaming and how video games treat fat characters and then movies and tv as well and so that's one thing that I would love to see changes like I see movies where fat people are evil just because they are fat yeah no it's and it's something that I think that we've culturally just allowed to happen so much that people mm -hmm. don't think about it and they should. Yeah. And that's very important. Uh, and that's why I really love the work that you do. And if, you know, from the moment that we met, uh, I was an admirer of your writing because you asked the questions that need to be asked. Well, thank you. And, uh, heartfelt moments. That was, that was beautiful. Thank you. Uh, I suppose since this is a horror podcast, before we uh, head off into the night, we should we should talk about something horror related. And I had made note of this because you mentioned Infinity War and we talked about how that's a big moment that's happening pop culturally right now because it's a crossover event where many popular characters are coming together. Uh, and a few days ago, you texted me about a movie mm -hmm. that for horror fans was its own crossover event. And that movie was Freddy versus Jason. That's right. Uh, and rarely do people out of the blue ask me about Freddy versus Jason. So I kind of wanted to ask you about it on the air. Uh, okay. What made you uh, reach out and ask about Freddy versus Jason? And what are your thoughts on that? So it's funny. The reason I texted you about Freddy versus Jason is because I was watching Alien versus Predator. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There's a through line. I'm right. So we, we, yeah, we stand a through line. Yeah. So I was watching Alien versus Predator and I was thinking about just how bad the 2000s were for creativity in terms of franchises. Right. I think that like the 2010s, we are doing a lot better with like reviving franchises in the right way. Right. Um, but during the 2000s, they were just out of gas. Right. And that's where you got Freddy vs. Jason and AVP and, um, and then AVP Requiem and all these other yeah. things. Right. Um, so... I just wanted your thoughts on that. That's honestly, that's honestly where it came from is that I was like sitting, eating Jack in the box, watching AVP thinking like, wow, we really, I mean, even 
still the 2000s or early 2010s was um, Adrian Brody's Predators, which was bad. Right. What's interesting about Freddy versus Jason is that I was not down with the idea when it first came out. Mm -hmm. And I will go on the record and say that I really like the movie now uh, because in a way it felt like a final send off for the characters in their sort of original iterations. Right, before we got the reboots. Yeah, before we got the reboots, it was like Robert playing Freddy one last time as the Freddy that we had in the 80s. And Jason kind of appearing as just like an unstoppable killing machine at camp as opposed to Jason in space and all the other like craziness that they did later. Uh, but what I think is really interesting about the Freddy versus Jasons and the uh, Alien versus Predators is at the time it kind of felt like a novelty to have those crossover movies mm-hmm. and how the landscape has now changed that you can have a whole cinematic universe. Right. Well, um, and you know a lot more about like movie houses than I do. So I don't know, like, did Freddy versus Jason, did they have to go through like any rights issues to like get them onto the same movie or anything like that? Or were they like owned by the same? Wow. I like when people, I, I'm always a fan of when people turn questions around on me on my, my show, uh, because I will answer that. Uh, yeah, there were two houses involved in, okay. in that. And what happened was the, the seeds for Freddy versus Jason began as early as the mid 80s. They wanted to do it around the time that Friday the 13th Part 7 came out. And uh, there are things that are, are beginning to be set up in the Friday the 13th franchise to... Uh, start bringing Freddy into the fold. There's a sequence in part seven where a little girl at camp wakes up and she's like, there was a man in my dreams. Mm -hmm. And of course, when you're watching the movie without Freddy in your mind, it just feels like she's having a nightmare and the counselor calms her down. But that was like, they were trying to like, this is trying to sew that together. But at the time, Friday the 13th was owned by um, Paramount. Okay. And Freddy was owned by New Line Cinema. Right. And I and I know Freddy vs. Jason was a new line. Yes. And it took until uh, Paramount sold the rights to the Jason character, which is why we got Jason Goes to Hell and Jason X. Because mm-hmm. those are uh, those are new line movies. Those those are not Paramount movies. Right. And it still took another like decade before right. someone was just like, finally, we'll get it together. It was in development hell for a really long time. And it had, it ultimately, the two studios couldn't get it together to work together. Someone had to buy someone else out. Well, you know what the lesson could be here? So to tie it even more all together, which I, you know, I love tying things together, girl. Uh, yeah. Um, so they kind of took the DC route, right? Yeah. DC was like, let's start with Justice League and then do separate movies. And that sucked. Right. And, and Marvel was in the long game and was like, let's give everyone their movie. Right. Blah, blah, blah. And then eventually we'll get to Infinity Wars. So I think that there is room in the world to like bring Freddy vs. Jason back or something like that or bring AVP back. Right. But like to do films that do the work to like show the characters getting slowly toward one another. Right. And then finally having a reason to interact that it feels um story that feels you know story wise correct yeah and doesn't feel shoehorned like i guess yeah the whole like freddie using jason to come back just it just felt like never in our lives did we think chem crystal lake was near elm street you know well one is supposed to be in ohio and the other is in new jersey and my favorite is how quickly they drive between them multiple times in the film yeah as someone who went to college in ohio and has driven to new jersey from there that is no short drive and also as someone who grew up in jersey and who's um, family lived in Ohio. I've taken the eight hour drive many times as well. Yeah, so I love the scene where they're like, we have to go to the camp. I'm like, what? Tonight? <laughs> Tonight you're going to get there by morning. Right. <laughs> but uh, I love it. Uh, so you heard the seeds of the idea planted here first in 2032, Freddy versus Jason version 2.0 as created here on Dead for Filth. <laughs> uh, Matthew, what have you seen recently that inspired you? What have I seen recently? Um, well, I want to talk about being inspired by Love, Simon, but not because I liked it, okay. <laughs> which I thought it was fine. It should exist because, sure. it, all, you know, silly teen rom-coms should exist. Yes. But I was actually inspired by the black gay character in the film, Ethan, um, because we also stand a supporting character who deserves their own film. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about how in Love, Simon... Simon comes out and everyone is kind of like, oh my God, Simon, you're revolutionary. Like, let's all come out about our secrets. And I'm like, Ethan's been out. Yeah. 
like Nicki Minaj would say, Laura Bincroft. And it's like, <laughs> why are we standing Simon? We should all be standing Queen Ethan. And I've just been thinking about like, what it means to further narratives like Simon's over Ethan's. Right. And that's gotten me thinking about like my own writing and like things that I would want to accomplish. Like what would I want to write about someone like Ethan? And I've talked to you about ideas I have for horror series that are queer as well. And, um, so I was actually think I've like, ever since I saw love Simon, I've been thinking about like what kind of writer I want to be and like what narratives I want to uplift. And I like, Ethan has like stayed in my mind for a long time. And normally this would be the point in the show, since you talk about uh, the kind of writer you want to be and the kind of writer that you are, where I would ask, you know, what's coming up next? What are your new projects? But I know as a writer, you're constantly working on things. So instead of telling me what's next, what are some highlight articles out there in the world that you think my listeners should read of yours? Okay. And they can like just go, they can span? Yeah. Whatever you you want to pick. Um, I recently wrote an article um, about Shania Twain and I've heard of her. <laughs> I recently wrote an article about Shania Twain and the whole controversy with her and Donald Trump. And what I did was I think that whenever there's a controversy, it's very important to bring it back to like you and how you react to things. Yes. And I wrote an essay that was about like what it means to give white women like icon status among queer people, specifically among queer white people, because we live in a universe where we know that 52 or 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Right. And um, so I think we have to be more like more cognizant of what it means to elevate someone to icon status, just based on like how their work makes us feel. Cause there is also a kind of like weird misogyny around standom sometimes. Yes. And so I just like, it was a call to make us more thoughtful about who we stand and the, the impetus behind it when standum is now so political. Um, so that's something I wrote recently. One thing that I always love that I wrote that I want people to read is about what, what the role of bathhouses is, what the role of bathhouses are in the age of apps. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it means to lose queer communal spaces. So I know it's like weird. So like, I think there's only 70 queer bathhouses left in America and there used to be like 300. And so they're on the decline. And obviously people would say like, maybe that's a good thing. I think that for a lot of people, bathhouses represent like dirty or having to go to right. not dirty, like physically dirty, but like having to go to a secret place to have sex because it's shameful. But also like anytime a bathhouse closes, it's the, it's the loss of queer space. And like, is there room to reinvent what, what the bathhouse is? I mean, bathhouse, right. I mean, Bette Midler started in bathhouses. Like why can't, right. why can't Janelle Monet, you know, be in a bathhouse <laughs> or why can't someone that queer people love or like queer artists, like perform in bathhouses again, you right. know, what are the ways that we can rethink? And also the other part of that is that private sex parties are on the rise, but private sex parties are also like an undemocratic elitist institution like based on invitations and people knowing people and it can be very um exclusionary right so what are ways that we can have like public sex that are that is inclusive and what are ways we can rethink queer space um and i also wrote about the recent rupaul controversy an article that's like have we reached the rupaul tipping point and the of her her trans discussion her trans discussion yeah. yeah and i kind of brought it back and just talked about um these are all on into by the way into more.com and uh just brought it took a step back and like looked at it cumulatively because this is not the first time that there was a trans controversy related to the show right um this has happened before and she's spoken about it a couple of times and then just like what it means because the other thing is that the fandom is not the same as it was five years ago no the fandom is little girls on reddit right you know and Also, the show is not what it was. I mean, VH1 is trying to tap into that little girl on Reddit market. You know, they are not servicing. But when you go to Hot Topic and you see an Alaska Thunderfuck t-shirt, it's a whole... And I love Alaska. She's a friend of mine from Pittsburgh. But like, if you had told either of us six years ago that her face would be at every mall in America, you wouldn't have believed it. So... I mean, do you remember when Hot Topic got Slayer, Buffy the Vampire Slayer merchandise really early? I do. Like you I, could get Sunnydale shirts there. I worked at Hot Topic uh, in my early college days and I still worked there when people like w- wouldn't come in the store because right. it was the devil's store. Meanwhile, we had like Tinkerbell throw blankets in the back. 
And you'd always have that grandmother that would come in and they'd be like, I hate this place. Oh, yeah. My mom was like, I hate this place and I wanted to go into it. And I wasn't even like gothy. I went there because of the Tinkerbell stuff more. <laughs> it's like I was never like, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, but I was a mall rat. I'm from Jersey. So I love them all. You know, that's the one thing that I think we've lost in the modern era are the people who just like kind of hang out at the mall. I was thinking about that the other day because I went to the Beverly Center because I wanted to buy the jacket that I wore here today that has Nicki Minaj on it because Nicki Minaj has a line at H&M. Oh. And so I had to go to a physical H&M and I went to the Beverly and I was like, people don't just get a Wetzel's pretzel or an Annie Ann and like chill anymore. I know. How are you doing, Sabaro? We're worried about you. Honestly, <laughs> someone check on Sabaro. <laughs> Matthew, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at Matthew Rodriguez and Matthew has one T and Rodriguez is spelled with a G and a Z. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about queer identity, uh, Captain America's love of Bucky and uh, all your writing and Buffy and all the things that you bring to the table, which are so amazing and and awesome. Thank you for having me. And um, I just love our conversations always. And I also just want to say on air that I value our friendship very much. And I'm glad that I was here today. Thank you so much. (laughs) I adore you. Oh, my goodness. Uh, This has been Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck.